The reading is from Luke 13, 10-17. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't stand up straight. When he saw her, Jesus called her to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. He placed his hands on her, and she straightened up at once and praised God. The synagogue leader, incensed that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded, There are six days during which work is permitted. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord replied, Hypocrites! Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for eighteen long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said these things, all his opponents were put to shame, but all those in the crowd rejoiced at all the extraordinary things he was doing. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tyler. I use he, him pronouns, and I can't wait to get into this story today. We have the story of Jesus interacting with the bent over woman. It's going to be an amazing uh, time today, and I just want to open us up in a word of prayer so that we can really like settle our bodies, settle our hearts to receive a word from God. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, I pray that through this uh, video, that through this gathering of your people, uh, that through these dedicated moments together, we might amplify the way that you are moving in our lives, God. Make it so evident how your spirit is uh, offering us a path to new life, God. Uh, make it abundantly clear that your love is making us whole. Uh, we receive all of that grace, all that goodness, God, and we open ourselves to you, allowing ourselves to even be surprised by how you will encounter how we will encounter you today. All this we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard a number of sermons on this uh, story, the story of Jesus interacting with the bent-over woman, and a lot of those sermons focus on the Pharisees. There's kind of that whole drama where the Pharisees are like, you can't do that on this day. And Jesus is like, oops. You know, like the, the, a lot of times the emphasis is on like um, the Pharisees and Jesus and that kind of tension that is uh, pervasive really through his whole ministry. The takeaway, of course, from that uh, kind of focus is that rules are great until God tells you to break them. <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of the sermons that are out there are, are kind of uh, emphasizing that. And I think that's so beautiful. And I believe that all of you are capable, uh, wise human beings who can open up scripture, go to the book of Luke, which is in the New Testament. Uh, Luke is one of the gospels, which is the biography, uh, the four biographies of Jesus that we have. Go to Luke, read the story, and you could see that tension easily there. But I feel like I haven't heard a lot of sermons that focus on the bent over woman. And as a pastor, uh, my commitment is to center marginalized voices, so much so that I dedicated the second chapter of my book to centering marginalized voices. Okay, plug is over. 
And I think that there's a lot to learn from this story by focusing on the woman who has a spirit that keeps her bent over. Now, uh, there's a lot of characters in the Bible who don't receive names. They're just kind of named like that woman who has this condition. And I like to believe that is because whenever there's a character who doesn't have a name, it's because it really could be any of us. That when characters are named, it's trying, the author is trying to create space in the story for us to see how we ourselves might be like that character. And there's two things that I really want to emphasize uh, from this story. Of course, we could spend a whole day just walking through this very rich story. Uh, but there are two things that I really want to emphasize. And the first is a question mark, and the second is an exclamation point. The question mark that I want to emphasize is the, what is implied in the backstory of this woman's life, namely the question of what do you do when you are facing a situation that does not have an easy solution? What do you do when you're facing a condition, a, a, a dynamic, a rupture, a dysfunction, that does not have immediate solutions, that doesn't have something that will easily fix it, that does not have an immediate gratification solution to it. What do you do then? How do we cope with that? And of course, this is not in the text, but just kind of reading between the lines, especially when noting how much effort the author goes to emphasize that this happened for 18 years, I imagine that that 18 years, that huge amount of time, was put in there to kind of create an imagination of what it would have been like to be in community with this woman who for 18 years had a, a spirit that kept her bent over. And I imagine, this was again not in the text, but I imagine that in the first year, there was just endless advice. There was just so many people knocking on her door, seeing her, shaking their heads, saying, well, you know, what works for me is I just um, try to have good posture when I eat. Or, or what works for me is like, I always make sure that I drink my milk. And have you ever tried milk? Let me, let me talk to you about milk. I bet that there was a lot of unsolicited advice for this woman in that first year because, because there's a certain anxiety in our society, in any human society, that uh, if there is a problem, we want to be able to fix it. And if there is something that can harm us, we want to be able to control it. That's just part of the human condition, part of human nature. And so often when society encounters a, a physical condition that is scary to us, perhaps because uh, able bodies ourselves don't want to be experiencing this, we just pile on advice or judgment to the person who's experiencing it because, uh, because we don't want that to exist in our bodies, in our society. We want there to be someone to blame for uh, the situation rather than just reckoning with the fact that this is, this is something that does not have an easily or found solution yet. And I imagine around the third year that, uh, that eventually there started to be some like resentment or anger of this woman. And three years in, people started kind of thinking like, well, why isn't she taking responsibility for herself? Why can't she do what the other women can do? Or like, 
why is she being such a wet blanket about uh, how she needs to sit in different kinds of chairs and she can't go to this event because of this and she can't go to... Well, I imagine that there was some heat in society that's like, I don't want to have to reckon with the fact that this person can't, not as unwilling to, but can't uh, do what everyone else seems to be able to do. I imagine that there was some anger in that third year. And probably around the 10th or 12th or 15th year, the greatest plague of all descended that woman's community. And people started looking at her and started to pity her. Pity is a certain kind of death. Pity is the removal of agency of a person. Pity is I um, look down at you and feel bad for you, but don't believe that you can be part of your own solution or liberation. Pity is a power dynamic. Pity is something that fuels toxic charity models. Pity is something that uh, I believe kills the soul. Because when someone is on the receiving end of pity, the message they receive again and again is, I do not have agency or power in this situation. I am pitiful. I am uh, simply an insect to be looked down upon. There's a certain death that comes to the soul in pity. And I imagine, filling in the blanks here, that this woman who was bent over started looking at how people glanced at her with pity in their eyes, started seeing how children talked about her, started encountering how even after she put in requests again and again for buildings and societies and gatherings to be different, that no one changed anything, she started to realize that this pity was on her and eventually the weight of the pity perhaps was keeping her hunched over as much as the physical condition in itself. In the story, Jesus may have changed this woman's body to function in a different way, but Jesus healed society of the pity that they felt for her. And furthermore, pity tends to not add heat into a system. Pity tends to not create social change. Usually when pity is the feeling, there isn't a following feeling of, well, what can I do different so that this isn't the case anymore? How can I create accommodations in my life? There, there isn't a, a, a conviction that comes from pity. A pity, uh, that, the pity that I'm talking about is like, oh, what a shame, poor thing. And that is not what results in a society changing. And if there's anything that Jesus came to show through all this kingdom of God talk, it's that he's trying to create a social change revolution here. Like the, <laughs> the movement of Christianity is about transforming society to more reflect and mirror God's hope for the world. And ultimately God will like uh, see that those efforts to fruition and ultimately like that's when we talk about heaven that's when we talk about kingdom of the city of God coming down okay now I'm getting excited but the, what I'm trying to say is that 
Christians are always tasked with the question of, of um, how is it that God is calling us to change our city so that it reflects the liberating love of God a little bit more? And perhaps our society needs to trade pity uh, and looking down on people for prophecy and believing that God might be trying to tell us something through the lives of marginalized people. Maybe that bent over woman would have had a lot of really good advice for how to change society to make things more accessible for people who are bent over, which by the way, most people in that society would have benefited from at some point. You know, like maybe the question shouldn't have been like, what did she do wrong? Or, or how, uh, how do we kind of like just brush this to the side and instead say like, wait, how do we center the voice of this woman who is bent over? And so that's the first point that I want to make. That's the, that's the question mark of, of what do we do with situations that do not have easily straightforward solutions? And I believe the answer to that is centering marginalized voices. But the second thing that I want to talk about, the exclamation point that I really want to emphasize here, is not the bodies of, of the able-bodied people in society, but what that bent over woman chose to do with her own life. There is a really important detail that just came screaming off the page for me as I was preparing for this sermon. There's a really important detail. The detail says that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. A woman was there. Okay, let's get into this. So you're telling me that there was a woman who, as the, the text would describe, has a spirit that keeps her bent over, that has an ailment that, that makes it hard to get around and do things for 18 years, for not, not 17 years, not 16 years, like a full American adult lifespan from baby to graduating high school for that many years, there is a woman who has had a hard time getting around for that many years, and she was still showing up to synagogue. She was still attending a community of faith. She still made her way out to this place that this set aside house of worship where people are uh, intentionally trying to encounter God. This, uh, this woman was for basically two decades of her life in a lot of pain, and she still chose to show up at a community of faith. Okay. And by the way, this is not about to be a guilt trip about whether or not you like tuned into online church during COVID. What I'm trying to say is that this woman is showing us how we can go about relating to the community of faith, relating to God when the going gets tough. This woman, who could be any of us, showed up again and again to the synagogue. Now, of course, uh, I, there are seminarians out there who are going to be like, Oh, but Tyler, synagogues had not only religious, but also socio and economic importance to them. And, and she would have attended simply because it was a social expectation. Well, here's the thing that we're learning about God is that rules are great until God tells you to break them. 
<laughs> so like she made a choice, even if it was one that was socially encouraged or incentivized, that woman made a choice to show up to worship a God who from based off of the pity of everyone around her, you might've guessed forgot about her. And yet she kept learning how to praise. She kept teaching her body how to pray. She continued to show up in the community to, to look out for people, to keep an eye on the kids as they were running around. She decided to do her part in this community of faith, even though she was living with one of the most unsolvable conditions that that particular town had seen for a long time. She was in constant pain, and yet she found a way to be in praise. And this is the exclamation point for me. Because you know that if she was really going through all of these things, that those prayers weren't just all this like Hallmark card like, oh, thank you, God. Wow, everything is so great. Ow! You know, like, like you know that there was anger in her prayers. You know that she showed up to God with accusations, with feelings of betrayal. And I would guess that she looked at those rabbis and the rest of the community and she's like, none of y'all know what I'm going through. But there's something powerful that happens when all of us who are experiencing something that doesn't seem like anyone else is going through can come together and learn to pray again and again, can attend to scripture of people who have gone through really painful, hard things. Somehow there is a lifeline established through the practice of worship. And she, I hope, was able to give it all to God, to pray as with as many tears and as many swear words as she wanted, because she's entitled to that. But she continued to show up. She continued to maintain a relationship with God. And the reason why that's important is because when she did receive a sign or when she did receive a certain act of mercy or grace that allowed her to move around in a way that hopefully was less painful, move around in a way that society was kind of like built to be able to handle. But when she stepped into that posture, she stepped into a posture of praise, a posture of thanksgiving. She exclaimed loudly how good God is. And I believe in that moment, she became the prophetic voice that that society needed to hear. She became the, the ultimate clergy in that space. She was showing people how to go about praising God, to, to lean into God's faithfulness, to continue the relationship with God, even when the going gets tough, and to not take it for granted when things get better. She was the ultimate teacher for that community. Jesus was showing the scriptures coming alive in her body simply by her experiencing wholeness. I believe that the lives, the bodies of marginalized people are God's preaching plan for the world. That there is a certain type of way that we can only encounter God when we center marginalized voices in our society. That means centering marginalized voices in the news, in the media you consume, in the conversations that you have, continuing to lean in to see who is being bent over in our society and how can we discern what God is doing in their lives and by extension in all of our lives. Amen. <laughs>